everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is another Kickstarter Spotlight episode, and today we're going to be talking about a Kickstarter uh, that's coming up real soon. It's called The Last Homicide, and I have the writer of the book, Frank Martin, joining me. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, Jace. Thanks for having me on. Always love chatting with you guys. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really great. I really enjoyed the book. Thanks for letting me take a, a sneak peek. And uh, we definitely want to get into what it's all about. I'm curious about your, your inspirations and we'll talk about like artistic collaboration and such. Uh, but the first thing we have to do uh, is talk about your secret origin. Whenever we have somebody on for the first time, we have to chat about how they fell in love with, with comics. Like how did you come to the, the world of comics? Were they a part of your childhood? Give us your, uh, give us your story. A little bit. I mean, uh, people usually get into comics because they know the characters originally, you know, they see Superman somewhere, they see Batman somewhere. For me, it was Spider-Man. And uh, I was, I grew up uh, the kind of animation heyday when they had the X-Men animated series and Batman animated series. And I loved the Spider-Man cartoon show. You know, they had the Aerosmith theme, theme song. It was awesome. I think, it, I think it happened one Christmas morning when I came downstairs and my parents, for some reason or other, just decided to buy me all Spider-Man stuff. So I was just like, okay, I'm a Spider-Man fan. <laughs> So, but I would like, I wasn't, I was into comics, but I, cause they had Spider-Man, but I didn't buy it religiously mm -hmm. until like, you know, if I'm in the bookstore, they have the spinner racks, I might just grab one. And then the one, the one book that hooked me was ultimate Spider-Man 13. You know, I didn't really know what it was about. I was like, Oh, Spider-Man, he's kind of a teen now. I'll just grab this. And then that was the book that I needed to get the next one. You know, I never had that feeling before where I had to right. go back. I got that first hit. That first high follow it up i had to chase it so um and from there just kind of, everybody has the same story they kind of snowballs i, I wanted i yeah. read another ultimate book and then i moved into a six six book and then a dc book an independent book and before i knew it i'm a full-on junkie so um that's yeah, that gateway they hook you and, and then they reel you in <laughs> yeah it's, it's a slippery slope and they that wall on the comic shop there's just so many of them just i want this and this and this and this um, but I, I was always into storytelling and writing. I was primarily a prose writer, though. So I would write fan fiction prose stories all throughout childhood and eventually my own stuff. And at some point, I was like, I love reading comics. I love writing stories. I was just like, let me just kind of see these paths converge. And that was kind of, I would say, college age. And um, I dabbled in it. I never really made a go of it until a couple of years ago. And now I got a couple of books under my belt. And Kickstarter has been a blessing for people like myself able to fund these projects because it's not cheap. And uh, yeah, I guess that's my origin. All, all 20 issues of it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you're, so you're uh, a writer. You're trying to, to do it full time. Is, is that correct? But you're still working a, like a regular day job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, at some point it's funny because you think it's never really a full-time job. I mean, the only people that do this are the big names that you could think of off the top of your head, but even people that I know that are professional comic writers, they always do something else. You know, it's never just this. They, they're either teaching or they're, they're doing journalism or they're doing editing or they're, they're always doing another thing, you know, very, very only the superstars who can get locked into contracts, uh, and they, they can drive books just by their name alone are really the ones that are doing this just flat out. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of fans forget that. Um, and every once in a while it'll come up some, uh, usually a, a comic creator will put out on social media. If you look at the number of like professional football players in the NFL or 
major league baseball players or basketball players or what have you. There's more of those. And those are, those are considered elite athletes, like the best of the best in that field. There are more of those than there are comic book writers, professional comic book writers that do it full time. But nobody looks at a comic book writer with the same sort of reverence, you know, of these professional athletes. But it is really rare to be able to do it, you know, full time and, and do it well. So, uh, you know, kudos to the guys like you that are, are doing it because they they love it, not because they think they're going to, you know, strike it rich the next Robert Kirkman or whatever. Yeah, I mean, the the ultimate goal is to just kind of every book to be a bigger launch, fans, and over time maybe that that source of income can get bigger and bigger and bigger. But yeah, to to live, especially if you're you have a family, it's just it's just not feasible. You know, it's just it's really tricky. And sometimes you pick up another interesting thing I like to do is I pick up not an obscure book, but just like uh, maybe a, a licensed property, a video game adaptation or something. You pick it up and it's got a writer on there that you never heard of before. Just Google them, you know, see what they're about, see their story, see how they, they came about. And they always they transition over from some other gig, some other job. And this was like just a couple extra bucks that they put in their pocket. You know, it's not their main it's not their main thing. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a weird, weird profession. Industry, industry in general is kind of weird. Yeah. I, I think you have to have a passion for it and a real love for it to, to do it. So you, you mentioned that you've uh, had, a, got a couple books under your belt now. Uh, it, have you done them previously on Kickstarter or was it through uh, another channel? Yes. I've, I've, I mean, I guess at this point I consider myself a little bit of a Kickstarter veteran. This one, uh, last homicide might be my 10th. I don't know. I kind of lost track. Not all of them have been comics. I've um, I've launched a couple of prose projects on there too. Um, but yeah, Kickstarter has been and other platforms like this. This is kind of a little bit of a golden age of crowdfunding, a way for creators to have a direct shot to um, readers and consumers, and a way for us to kind of kind of put money in directly into our pocket because you know if you got retailers and distributors and publishers it's a very small cut at the end of the day for people that actually make the book this is a this is a little bit of a way for us to to finance the projects and then maybe if there's another uh more interest in the book you then put it into kind of a a retailer setting so it's not the end of the story for when you kickstart a book yeah, and the other thing, um, and I, I'm, it must be the case for you, having done it successfully so many times, is when you're dealing directly, you cut out the middleman, you deal directly with the fans that are interested in your work, you start to build a community. And then those same readers that become followers of yours come back for subsequent projects. Do you find that to be true? Definitely. I've had a, I've met a bunch of people through this and it's, it's more, you're really more in touch with the fans because Kickstarter is like a social media platform in and of itself. You know, they're directly, they're, they're messaging you, they comment on your project. You're able to have that, that feedback back and forth. So it's, so it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely been awesome and, and very cool. Well, why don't you tell us uh, about your latest project, uh, Last Homicide. Uh, it's a detective story. Uh, if you had to give somebody the, the elevator pitch, uh, what's the story all about? So the, the elevator pitch would be that a, an old detective who's on the verge of retirement, he's caught one last homicide, one last case, and it happens to be the murder of a mob boss's son. So in this particular city that he works at, um, two rival mob bosses are on the verge of war, and he's afraid that this is going to tip them over the edge. So his last homicide, he has to solve it quickly before the two mob bosses go after each other because of this. Yeah, and it's, it, it's really interesting. You're pulling from a, a lot of like a classic 
uh, themes and ideas from a detective story. You know, so many, you know, it's that like the, that guy that's on the edge of retirement. He's either burnout or he's done it too long or he's just ready to, to do something else or, or hang him up. Um, and it's so it's so interesting that we get so invested in guys that, you know, are, are experts and you can't help but but root for this guy. And of course, he's got a younger partner that's, you know, a little snarky and and all that. So I wonder, uh, you know, did you always love these type of detective stories? Uh, can you name any influences, anything that you uh, have enjoyed that you're pulling from uh, to help craft this story? So I love these, when I think of detective stories, you always think of those old school kind of age, uh, classic age of Hollywood, gumshoe tales, was uh, Maltese Falcon. I always come back to that. I read that, that was like a signed reading in middle school or something. And I really dug the, 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 the novel. So I had to check out the movie and it's, it's created all these classic tropes, these classic ideals of, you know, the femme fatale coming in and, and kind of get, um, uh, trying to pitch pitch the detective on his case that when you when you fast forward like 50 years we see these genres though this classic genre kind of bleed into other genres you know you got the the neo-noir as far as like something like dark city or you have um my favorite movie which is uh who framed roger rabbit you know that's a classic detective story but it's so goofy it's so over the top but those tropes and those stereotypes are still ingrained in it so i wanted to to take those different things that i uh, the stories that i love so much that i grew up with and extract the the core of where they came from and go right back to the roots and do something that's strictly kind of detective pulp, uh, hard boiled, just a, a cop cops on the case trying to, trying to do their jobs. Yeah. And you know, sometimes I'll, I'll hear fans that kind of complain, Oh, that's been done before. You know what? There's a reason that these stories are good. There's a reason you get stuck. There's a reason that they're stereotypes and tropes. It's because they work. It's because they're interesting. Um, and as a writer, don't try to reinvent the wheel. Um, you know, you can use these ideas. And then I think where you build out and what I enjoyed so much about your first issue was, you know, you have that framework for the story, for the narrative, but then it's all about character. You know, the characters drive the story and it's about their relationships and how they re are reacting to this uh, kind of classic framework. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I, um, I would say what I like to do is I want to have my my take on a blank story, whatever blank is, you know, whether it's a um, a vampire story or an apocalypse story or a um, an outer space story. So this would be my hard boiled pulp detective story. You know, I wanted to take that and just throw myself in it and do my spin on these different things that are classics. And at that point, I started asking myself, I kind of reverse engineered it on how I was going to do it. Uh, um, what kind of scenario did I want? What type of characters did I want? And murder mysteries are always tricky because it's never going to be some, the guy who's, who's the killer is never going to be some guy that's just walking down the street, some random fellow that, oh my God, it's him. You know, we found yeah. it. It's always going to be some, one of the characters that you were introduced to before. So you gotta, you gotta be very careful on how you crack these stories and the work on their relationships between all the different characters and the drama so that uh, people get so sucked into the, the drama and the story itself that when you have, you finally have the, the final big reveal at the end, these mysteries uh, start to unfold. It's not, something that's like boring, you know, something that they saw coming a mile away. Yeah, that that's true. The fact that it, it is a, it's not just a detective story, but it's a, you know, it's a mystery. And, and in the first issue we're introduced to, you know, you mentioned yourself, it's a, you know, a, one of the mob uh, bosses uh, children who's, who's killed. 
and we meet the two different mob bosses and uh there's hints that the uh the police force is, is very corrupt they're kind of on on the take uh but it's not set in a specific city but yet i get the feeling that as it goes along that the city itself almost becomes uh like a character um because it, it's the kind of the the atmosphere is the word that i would use of the first issue and of the setting really starts to take on a, a life of its own. So was that something that you wanted to establish through the narrative, through the visuals? Was it a, a blend of both? Did you purposely not say, hey, this is New York or this is Chicago or, or what have you? Yeah, I, I typically like to, not just settings, but I also typically like to refrain from just pop culture in general. You know, name, name dropping a TV show or a fast food place or, and name dropping anything. I think that taking that out makes stories feel a little bit timeless in, in a way. Mm -hmm. And I definitely did that with the city. You know, I wanted this to be kind of like every city, but at the same point um, with the vision, that, that's the story side of things. And with the visual side of things, it's really tough to pin down where this is. And we did that a little bit on purpose. There's a little bit of New York, there's a little bit of Chicago, there's even some Miami kind of thrown there too. So it's, it's, it's got this roundabout feel to it that it's, it feels familiar, but at the same time, it feels a little bit, different in that you can't exactly tell where it is it said it's in its own pocket noir universe if if you will yeah now uh this uh illustrator pietro vaughn is that somebody that you've uh, worked with before or is this your first project with him um i tend to bounce around with different artists uh not not for any particular relationship reason i just like to try to kiss all the girls you know i want to yeah <laughs> i want to kind of mingle with everybody and and uh, get a feel for different forms of working relationships. And every once in a while, I come back to people that, and we work with something again, but I, I just like to do things different all the time. So uh, when it came time to uh, come up with uh, the visual look for the city and then uh, the character designs, was that something where you and Pietro went back and forth or did you have a pretty good idea in, in your head of, uh, of how you wanted things to look? I, it was me. All the visuals are mainly him as far as uh, character design, as far as the visuals of the different city. Um, he does a great job with, I would say, framing specific shots to give it that real pulp detective noir feel. And I, I guided him a little bit. But at the end of the day, he was the one that that laid it all out that way. And I was kind of surprised that the, for, when, when it was finally finished and I read through it, I was kind of surprised at how easily it is to fall into that cinematic kind of feel to it mm -hmm. with some of his, his framing, with some of his long shots, the way he plays with shadows. And especially with um, with Eugene, who did the colors, he did a great job, too, of kind of just just grounding the feel, grounding the tone. And it's uh, overall, it's, it, I love the feel of this book. And you really get that from the cover alone. I could just kind of, I see it on your background. It just, once yeah. you look at the cover, you know exactly what this, the, the, the tone of this book is going to be. Yeah. And I was going to talk about Eugene's colors next because yeah, he, he really, a lot of times I, I talk about how colors are sort of the, the soundtrack of a, of a comic, you know, it's because the soundtrack is what gets you amped up. It's what really can affect you on an emotional level. And in a comic, that's a lot of times what the, the color does. And he's using, you know, somewhat of a muted uh, or muted rather palette and obviously some darker colors. This is, you know, crime noir. And you really get the the sense, uh, you know, this easily could be, you know, a 1940s, like you said, pulp detective story uh, about this guy who's uh, who's been around the block and, and seen it all. So um, you must have been blown away when you saw the colors for the first time. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that. By the way, the colors are a soundtrack to a comic. Oh yeah, 
100%. I'm putting that in my back pocket. I'm going to pull that out sometime. <laughs> uh, the other thing that I, I wanted to talk about uh, in terms of visuals, um, one of the things that, that Pietro does, uh, you know, he does use wide panels quite a lot, which gives it that cinematic feel. The other thing he does a lot is he moves the camera angle around. He, he'll tilt it one way or the other. So your, your eye never gets, gets bored, right? Like, at least in the first issue, there's not a, a ton of action. You know, this isn't some superhero over the top, supervillains fighting kind of thing. Um, so there's always the danger when it's uh, a story where it's a little more talking heads uh, that it can be a little a little boring. So the fact that he does that, I think, um, is another, you know, really great asset uh, because not, not to say that the scripting is uh, over the top. I mean, I think you have it scripted and, and paced and plotted very, very well. Um, but he does do a good job of of varying things up, so your eye never gets uh, never gets bored. So I I I think you really nailed it with uh, the artist on this one. Thanks. Um, I mean, hats off to to Tobin, who is our letterer on this. I typical I typically letter my own books, so I get a little spoiled because when I'm writing, I'll letter something and I'll edit it and trim it down as I'm lettering it. Mm -hmm. He was my he was my letterer on this project, so I didn't really have a chance to do that. And as I'm typing this out. I kind of felt like an old Hollywood screenwriter, you know, that's just pumping out dialogue. Yeah. And then, and then it wasn't until he actually lettered the book and I'm looking at these pages and I'm like, Oh my God, what did I do? I just, <laughs> I can't see anything on this page. It's just it's all words. So I had to, I, as I'm looking through the proof, I'm kind of I'm cutting things out and I'm trimming it down to the point where we got the dialogue exactly kind of the way we wanted it and placed the way we wanted it. So I really, I tried, it's like you said, there's, there's not a whole lot of action to drive a lot of the pages. It's a lot of dialogue. It's a lot of like, like that. Those just those Hollywood movies of guys just standing around, just spitting lines back and forth to each other. So um, we really did our best to display the feel of the characters, through their dialogue, uh, conveying the information of the plots but not making it so overbearing that things don't move, you know? No, so, it, it, yeah. And, and that's the other thing, even though it moves at a really uh, good clip, you, this isn't one of those situations where you're done in five minutes and you're like, man, what did I spend my, my money on? Like you're getting a big chunk of story. Um, and so, but I am glad that you brought up uh, Tobin be, because, and you'll know this because like you said, you've lettered yourself letters. They're the unsung heroes, right? Like they're like a baseball umpire. It, you, you shouldn't notice them if they do their job correctly. But if they do it poorly, it just doesn't work. And that's what people don't realize, that the lettering, that affects the pace. That affects like where you put the balloons, how it leads your eye around the page, how many words, how many sentences are in each balloon. That controls the pace of the story, how fast you read it. And all that, it has to be done correctly. And uh, yeah, Tobin did an incredible job. You want you want to get me talking? I could just talk about lettering all day long. So, <laughs> I don't consider myself a letterer. I'm just a writer who letters his own books. That's kind of the way I put it. And yeah, I kind of I started lettering simply because I wanted to be able to cut costs in some projects. If I wanted to do a short, I didn't want to go out and, and find a letter. If I just want to put something out really quickly, and I, I it was amazing how fast I grew for an appreciation of the trade because. Um, I'm trying to do like the simplest thing on a lettering and it's taking me in a day and a half to do like uh, either a mask on something or something that it, the reader is going to look at for five seconds and just be done with not realizing how much work actually goes into it. So, so yeah, I, lettering, lettering is the only art form that's the more successful, the least you notice it. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, 
it's, it's kind of, it's, it's just wild and it's crazy. And I, I really get a kick out of lettering my own books and putting uh, my own touches on this. And Tobin, he did, he did a good job. We talked a lot about lettering and as far as moving specific things and covering up some dead spaces here and there in the panels. So uh, yeah, God bless him. Who he, he tweaked a lot to get it looking just the way that I wanted to, because once I started lettering, I'm like, I want this to be kind of exact. Yeah. We, we worked on it together. And, and I think this was a real team effort putting the book together. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a beautiful package uh, as well. And a, and a great story. Uh, and I want to I want to talk a little bit about um, the reward tiers, but before we get to there, just just one uh, one more thing about uh, the characters. Uh, we have the Detective Wilmer, which is you know kind of the older seasoned guy who's caught this one last case, and his partner Gomez. Uh, and the interaction between the two is, is great. Um, it, it's like uh, you know an older and younger brother where they're you know give, constantly giving each other uh, giving each other crap. Uh, did you pull from any specific? Um, inspirations from those people you know or or characters that you that you love you know this is your chance like you said to, to tell hey this is my hard-boiled uh, detective story so i'm curious if you pulled for anybody or are you just kind of amalgamated from uh, kind of your own experiences you know, you know what it's such a classic relationship i don't think i was inspired by anything in particular at least when i was writing it but they're in there you know they're in the back of my head i've seen so many of these movies uh, as you're saying this the one that really jumps out at me is is seven, you know, we got Morgan Freeman, who's basically yeah. the older guy, Brad Pitt is the young guy, the young buck on uh, that's his partner. So uh, there's so many that are like that. And um, yeah, I have just this, you, when you watch these things and you read them so much, they just absorb into your subconscious. Yeah. So that when you're writing, they'll just bleed out and you don't even kind of realize it a lot of the times. Uh, I, also, I also want to point out that we're talking about the murder of a mob boss's son. He's a grown-up son. He's not, we didn't, I didn't. Oh yeah, we, yeah. We I, didn't, I didn't kill off some kid at the beginning of the book, if you were, if you were wondering. No, but I, you know what, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. Because yeah, we want to make that clear that this is, you know, a, a grown man. But the other thing that you did really well, we, I didn't even think to, that I was going to talk about this. But the mob bosses, we, we don't get a lot of information about them, you know, in terms of facts, you know, how long they've been around, what air territory they control or whatever. But the thing that comes across that you did so well is a sense of menace. They're very different from each other, but they both feel threatening, you know, not over, but just the way their dialogue and the, the, the um, kind of the body language that, uh, that Pietro put in. You know, these are people that you don't mess with. So I, I was that conscious that you wanted it to to be that way without being over the top for them? Yeah. You know, I wanted um, my bosses are so much fun to write because they're so particular with their word choice. You know, mm -hmm. they know exactly what they're saying and how to say it. So you really want to craft certain ways for them to, to come off scary and threatening through through simply their words you know they don't they got people to do the dirty work for them they don't need right. to do it they don't need to pull out guns or to beat people with baseball bats although it does happen from time to time but um but yeah in situations like this especially when you're talking to cops in a in a corrupt city which you basically own you 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 can be really clever with how you're how you're writing their dialogue especially when they've risen to that level of of the crime family you know they're they're good at what they do you know they're good at manipulation and nuance 
So you gotta, you, you really have to take care in their writing their dialogue and not just be like, yeah, I think they'll say this, you know? So, um, yeah, go over scenes constantly to making sure, um, making sure they say what they, that, what they want to say. And there's one particular line of, of dialogue. Um, it's when it's the mob boss whose, whose son just died. And she says something along the lines of, um, what does she say? I'm forgetting now, but I changed her line at the last second, the very last proof when she says, um, forget it. It, it was, it would have been so good if I remembered what, what it was. <laughs> but, you're, but you're right though. I, I mean, like you said, they, they, they have a level of intelligence. They're very, they're very shrewd. You know, they're not going to say something where later on in court, you can say, well, they said this. Well, no, that's not actually what I said. You know, if you're if you're wired or, you know, uh, if there's somebody listening. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty cool when uh, when you can sort of read between the lines. So uh, I think you captured that really, really well. I'm trying to look for it now because it's going to bother me all day. But anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> uh, all right well do you want to tell uh, our listeners about what some of the uh, reward tiers are that you're uh, that you're offering for this sure uh i also i always offer let's try that again i always offer a base reward of the digital comic so um you could grab that for five bucks i also offer kind of a digital deluxe tier which would be the this comic and i've also written two um black and white uh, crime kind of mafia shorts so you'll be getting those two if you want to if you just want a little bit extra in your digital package uh i also i offer the standard print edition i have a variant cover by my buddy luke cooper he um i i'm not sure what, how much that's priced as but i'm also doing a a kickstarter exclusive uh noir edition of the the standard cover so the cover that's that's on your backdrop it's going to be it's going to be um it's going to be uh, it's going to be bare. It's going to be virgin. So no, no title, no, no names. And it's not going to be in color. It's going to be in black and white. So that's just that's a Kickstarter exclusive. I won't print any extra, any extra copies of those. Um, what else would be available? I have a buddy of mine, Lane Thomas. I always commission him to write a theme for every project I do. So there's going to be kind of a um, old school noir kind of pulp, um, kind of a old comic that people can grab as part of the campaign. Uh, I always offer a couple commission tiers. Um, the, I have Luke who did the, um, the variant can do a commission. I always put myself on there as a commission. I always get one or two people that grab that. Cause I'm always jealous of artists. <laughs> uh, people commission me to write a, a short story, kind of a thousand word story. It can be a detective story or anything that you want. So, so yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much, I got a bunch of other stuff there too, but those are kind of the core words that people usually typically grab from me. And do you have an idea of how many issues uh, Last Homicide is gonna is gonna run? What's your, kind of your plan going forward, assuming that this continues to get funded? This is a two parter. This is a, this is kind of a two part story, and uh, usually my two parters are left a little bit open ended so that I can continue it. But not not this. This is this is just gonna be one part, two part. That's it. And the way it ends, it's going to be pretty conclusive that we're not going to see any follow-ups. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That sounds pretty good. Uh, all right. Well, uh, it's been great talking to you, Frank. Um, everybody, the, the Kickstarter goes live on, on April 6th. So uh, there's a link in the show notes. You can go click there and go and check it out. 
and and I, I want to remind you, like I remind you guys, every time we do one of these spotlights, even if it's not for you, even if it doesn't sound like you might be interested, or maybe you are interested, but you just don't have the means right now, you can really help Frank out by sharing it on social media. Uh, the more eyes that uh, get to see the project, the more likely that somebody who is interested is going to be able to discover it and find it and uh, be able to enjoy it and also share it on their social media. So uh, even if you, if you, like I said, it's not for you or you don't have the means to fund right now, please just share it on social media so we can be sure to get as many eyes on it um, as possible. So uh, again, link in the show notes. And, uh, and Frank, if anybody wants to follow along with you and your work and kind of, uh, you know, know how Kickstarter is going and upcoming projects and such, uh, where's the best place online to, uh, to find you and your work? I'm pretty simple. You can remember me, writer. So I have a website, frankthewriter.com. Uh, you can sign up for my mailing list. I send out uh, bi-weekly uh, email blasts, just kind of letting people know what I'm up to. Also, social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, at Frank the Writer. Well, great. And I'll put links to uh, Frank's website and social media in the show notes as well, everybody. So if you're having trouble finding them, you can go uh, and click there. So uh, again, Frank, thanks for coming on and, and talking about Last Homicide. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I will definitely be picking up a, a copy. I, I think maybe I might go for that Kickstarter exclusive. That sounds like a really cool uh, cover to have. So uh, again, best of luck with the, uh, the project and thanks for joining me. No, thank you for having me on. This was cool to chat about the project. Uh, and to you listeners, uh, we want to thank you for, for your support as always. And we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.